My name is Scott Avey. I'm the pastor of worship. And it's such a privilege to have you here with us. Thank you for spending your Sunday morning here with us at Grace, especially if you're a guest. There's so many people that are coming and checking out Grace. It's so good to have you guys here. Let me go ahead, and I just want to open our time. I want to punctuate our time here with prayer. Let's, let's start out our time in prayer. God, thanks for these people that are here. We want our hearts to be instructed by your word. So God, may what's communicated today, would it not be with persuasive words of human wisdom, but by a power and a demonstration of the power of your spirit. God, would our hearts be laid bare before you. Tear down walls, God. Uh, Thank you for our time here together. We pray that you'd be blessed, Lord, and that people would be edified here this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, a couple of years ago, I was traveling back home from some sort of business trip. I was at a pastor's conference somewhere else, and I was flying back. And, and I don't have to do a lot of flying. I realize some people do that constantly. That's not normally what I have to do. So I was traveling, and I was very weary. And I was coming home into Dulles, and it was after a day of just that icky airport sort of smell and feeling, right? Like, you're just like, oh, I just want to be home right now. And so we're flying into Dulles, and the wheels land, and I, I love that feeling when, when, the, when the, the pilot says, you can unbuckle your seatbelt now, and you're approved to turn on your portable devices, right? And if you're like me, where you just like check your email all the time and your text messages, I was like, oh, great, you know, and I get on my phone, and I'm checking my email, and, and, but I, I needed to make my way to the long-term parking in Dulles, and they never dignify long-term parking with an easy route to get to it. It's always like you, like subclass citizens, go far away, and then you'll finally get to your, where you're going. And so I, I, I had my bags with me, and and I had a, a hoodie sweatshirt on, and, and I'm just in this, I don't want to be connecting with the airport around me, so I've got my earphones on, and I'm checking my email, and I'm like, you know, I need to use the restroom. Well, I'm in the bowels of the airport at this point in time. There's no one around, and so I'm on my phone, and I see in the distance a restroom, so I head in that direction, and I make my way into the restroom, and then I, I sit down in the stall, and then, and then I hear this sound, sound of click, clack, click, clack, <laughs> giggle, giggle. And I'm thinking, why is there a woman in the men's restroom? (laughs) And then I start rolling tape. Wait a minute. When I came in here, did I actually see the men's restroom sign there? Did I actually pass by any urinals? There aren't any urinals in this bathroom. And I had this moment of complete and utter terror where I'm thinking, oh, my word, I made it into a women's restroom, and I'm sitting there in the stall, and I'm thinking, if they look underneath the stall, they'll see my hairy hobbit feet and legs. This is horrible. Like, what am I going to do? And then, so I'm like, I know what I'll do. What, um, let's see. I'll put my hood over my, my and, but I'm like, I've got this huge beard at the time, and I'm like, how creepy is that? Some guy, like, sneaking out of the women's restroom with a hoodie. I was like, okay, that won't work. And so I ended up waiting, like, 15 minutes for all the foot traffic to go through the bathroom, and I'm like listening so carefully, like, is anyone else coming in? And when I thought I had a moment of silence, I just took a mad break for it, and luckily I made it out in one piece, and they didn't have to call security on me or anything. I was so horrified, but for me, it's this picture of sometimes in life, we can just go through the motions, and we're not paying attention to what's going on, and then all of a sudden, something snaps you back into reality, right? When I heard those voices, I would snap back 
into reality. And so we're talking about in this series, these moments when something gets a hold of our attention and how sometimes we can step, we can, we can check out spiritually as well, but God uses an experience that we have where we see something and it snaps us out of those moments. Sometimes we see something that so breaks our heart that we are compelled to take action. And so we talked about this with Moses, how Moses grew up in the lap of Egyptian luxury, but he saw his fellow Hebrew men being beaten, and so he was compelled to take action. And we asked this question, what have you seen that breaks the heart of God that you feel compelled to take action about? We have a story of a young lady in our church that she experienced that. She saw and heard about human trafficking, and she's like, man, what can we do to step into this? What can we do to take action? We talked about Moses having this Popeye moment. Popeye the sailor man, this cartoon, and he has this good-looking girlfriend named Olive Oil, and they'd be going out for a night on the town and just doing their thing, and then all of a sudden, Bluto would start messing with them. And then also, and Popeye, he'd have all he could stand with this guy messing with his girl. And so he would say these words that got seared in our psyche that I've had all I can stand and I can't stand no more. And then he downs the spinach and mops up. And as a matter of fact, someone came up to me before the first service and handed me two uh, cans of spinach, which I gladly donated to the food bank in the back. <laughs> I'm not doing canned spinach, man. No way. Right? And so we have these stories. There's all of them. They're all over Scripture. Last week we talked about the Apostle Paul, that when Paul enters the scene, he was this anti-Christian, and he hated Christians. He would go around trying to arrest them and take away their property. He would get them executed. This Paul was a bad dude, but then something happened, this moment happened when something snapped, and, and he learned who the person of Jesus was. He was recruited to be a Jesus follower, and then he spends his energies trying to undo what he did and bringing the gospel not just to the Jews, but all around the world. He's a tremendous missionary. And he writes in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, for Christ's love compels me. Christ's love compels us. We talked about that that's true for us individually, but corporately it matters for us too, that we are compelled, that the love of Christ compels us to urge others to be reconciled with God. That at the tip of the spear, that if they don't do anything else, that if they don't sing like we sing, if they, don't have, they have a different color skin or they, they speak differently than we, do, than we do, that if they don't get anything else, but they understand that they can be reconciled to God and that message compels us. There are so many stories in Scripture where we could see these moments where someone is snapped out of their stupor. Think about David as a young boy taking food to his brothers out in the battlefield. And when he steps up to the battle line, he hears this Philistine who's mocking his living God. And while all the rest of the adults are cowering, David steps into action. He grabs his sling and five stones. And you know the story of David and Goliath. We could talk about Nehemiah, who's he's a cupbearer for the king. And he hears that the walls around Jerusalem are crumbling and it's a laughing stock that the name of God is being mocked and, and that he needs to build up the walls. And so he gets people around him and he gets support for this. He's had all he could stand and he can't stand no more. And so he gets people and despite great opposition, he goes and he rebuilds the walls. We could talk about Ezra. Ezra was another person who worked for another foreign king, and he heard that the, the temple of God was in disrepair, and so he, he had all he could stand, and he got support, and he rebuilt the temple. Or there's Esther. Esther's this beautiful Jewish queen of a foreign king, 
and she discovers a plot that is going to destroy her people. She had all she could stand, and she can't stand no more, and so she risks it all to save her people. These stories are all over the place in Scripture, but this morning we're going to talk about Jonah. Now, if you're tracking with this theme of compelled, like people who are compelled to do great things, and if you know the story of Jonah, you're thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute, I know this story. And Jonah is not compelled. Jonah is like the anti-compelled. Jonah is the example of what you don't do. But I would submit to you that the story of Jonah is a subplot. It's a subplot. And the greater story happening in this book is the story of God's unrelenting, compelled passion to save the lost people that he sees. Now, when I say Jonah, you probably think Jonah and the whale, or Jonah in the fish. And if you grew up in church, or you, maybe if you didn't even grow up in church like many of us, you know some of these big stories in Scripture. David and Goliath, Noah in the ark, Jonah in the whale. I mean, that's what we think of when we think about Jonah. We think about God stepping into this natural, making something supernatural happen, breaking the laws of nature to have this fish swallow Jonah. Right? And, it, and God can do that. He, he has the ability. He spoke everything into, into being. And so he would have moments where he would interject into the natural ways and he would have something supernatural take place. He would part the Red Sea. He would have these plagues take place. He would, he would make the sun stand still. He would cause people to be healed and raise people from the dead. That all is true and it's, and it's in there. But the story of Jonah, that's just a subplot. The real story it's the story of God's unrelenting love. And as we see, I think the book of Jonah, that scripture is a mirror for us. And we're going to see some threads of humanity, of how Jonah reacted to the love of God. And, and maybe we might see ourselves a bit in this book as well. So we're going to open up the book of Jonah. If you have a Bible, please grab it. If you need one, raise your hand. Our ushers will get one to you. If you don't own one, it's our gift. Just write your name in it. Or maybe you have a, a phone or an iPad with you. You can grab the version app. It's so important that we're in God's Word together. We're going to be in Jonah. So Jonah's in the Old Testament. It's before Matthew. It's about two-thirds of the way through the Bible. If you've got one of our Bibles, it's page 1495. You can use that. Now Jonah is a short book. Jonah is only four chapters long. But it's a wonderful example of fine literature. Each word is purposefully chosen and used in the book of Jonah. Jonah, we're going to be in chapters, uh, just in chapter one, we're going to spend our time in the first three verses. Now before we read it, I want to just kind of give us a quick overview of the book of Jonah. Jonah was a prophet, and a prophet isn't someone who is foreseeing or foretelling the future, but a prophet, to be a prophet simply means that you're proclaiming truth that you're sent by God to tell God's truth to a person or a city or a nation or a leader or a people group. We have other instances in Scripture. So Jonah's a real historical person. We have other places where he's referenced in 2 Kings. It says that Jonah would go and he would speak to the king of Israel. Jesus spoke about Jonah as well. And he was a prophet. Jonah was a prophet sent to go speak God's truth to others. And God says, Jonah, I want you to go and I want you to speak to, to the Ninevites. 
So what Jonah does, now Nineveh is in current day Iraq. It's right across the Tigris River from the city of Mosul. And Jonah is in Israel. And God says, I want you to go to Nineveh. And so what Jonah does is he gets up and instead of heading due east, he goes directly west towards Spain. He gets on a boat, gets a ticket for, for, for uh, Spain, for Tarshish. He gets on the boat and they set out to sea. And when they're at sea, this tremendous storm kicks up. And the storm is battering and, and going to overwhelm the boat. And these seasoned sailors that are there, they start getting really freaked out. They're thinking, we're going to die unless somebody does something about this. Maybe someone's God is upset with them. Maybe someone's God is honked off at them. So quick, you, you pray to your God real quick and make sure, make sure that we haven't done something. Pray to your God. And they gather people together. They say, pray to your God and make sure that you haven't done something wrong. And when they look for Jonah, they find him in a deep sleep in the belly of this boat. And they wake him up. Jonah, come upstairs. So Jonah comes upstairs and he looks at what's happening and all of a sudden he knows what's going on and he raises his hands, guys, it's me. Oh, it's my God. My God's all honked off at me. And so he tells them, if you want the storm to go away, you've got to throw me overboard. And the sailor's like, I don't want to be responsible for someone, for a man of God's death. So they throw all their cargo and then it gets worse and they say, okay, we're going to do this. So they throw Jonah overboard and says that the storm goes away. And that Jonah is swallowed by a fish. And then the fish pulls a yui and spits Jonah out on dry land, which is a wonderful life lesson for you. Do what God says or you end up smelling like fish puke. Right? And Jonah goes and he preaches to the Ninevites. And he tells them about their sin. And they repent. And God spares them judgment. Wouldn't it be great if that was the end of the story? Wouldn't it be great if, if the, it fades to black and the credits roll and everyone lives happily ever after? But it says that Jonah despised what just happened. That he resented that God didn't send calamity. So let's check into why that is. And I think as we do, I think as we hop into this story... Scripture becomes that mirror, and we see little bits of ourself and how Jonah reacted. So open up your Bibles, book of Jonah. That was the overview. Book of Jonah, here we go. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Before we go any further, in ancient and Middle Eastern uh, regions, the name, the name of a person has tremendous value. They mean something. The name Jonah stood for the word, it stood for dove, and Amittai was truth-telling. So an ancient reader reading this who knows the story of Jonah and how it turns out, that's a source of great irony. They would have laughed at that. So here's what I want to do. I want to I read it again and pretend you're an ancient reader and just chuckle with me as we read that, right? Because Jonah, the dove, the innocent one being a truth teller, that's not how it turned out. They knew this. So here we go. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. <laughs> you got, man, all right. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. So God says to Jonah, Jonah, I want you to go and I want you to preach to the Ninevites because their wickedness has come up before me. 
that God, when he sits on his throne, Scripture says he looks out across the world. And when he looked out across the world, he looked at Nineveh, and it was shining like this red beacon of wickedness. Now, when we say wickedness like this, we're not, he's not talking about like, oh, I lost my temper today. Or, I, boy, I just was a little more edgy than I should be, or maybe I said some cuss words, right? When he's talking about wickedness, he's talking about really, really evil, wicked things that God saw happening in Nineveh. That they did it openly and proudly they were wicked. This sort of thing we see in other cities as well. Um, in, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, we see like Sodom and Gomorrah or Babylon. There were these cities that so were, were so wicked They're kind of lumped together. This sort of wickedness that we see were things like sexual immorality, where openly there was issues like incest and and homosexuality that was acted upon and heterosexuality outside of the confines of marriage. How in the the, the pagan temples, one of the ways that you would worship is you would go and you you would hire a prostitute and sleep with them, and that was your act of worship. That there was all sorts of open, just kind of pornographic materials. There was, it was everywhere. It just was drenched in this community. There were issues of going to these pagan temples and they would sacrifice humans to these pagan gods. They would sacrifice their kids to these pagan gods. There was infanticide and what we would call abortion taking place. They didn't want to deal with their kids so they would just sacrifice them to some pagan idol. There's if issues of slavery, of treating one of someone who's made in the image of God like they're a possession, and they would sell them and they would use them, and it was just ugly things. It was, it was issues of like oppression to the poor, of just beating them down and having no regard for them. It was things like human arrogance, what we would call humanism, saying that I don't need God at all. I'm the only God that I need, right? We see this in, in, in the Tower of Babel, and they think, if, if I can just build a big enough building, then we'll be like gods. That's humanism. And God looks down, and he sees Nineveh shining like a beacon, shining like a beacon of weakness, wickedness. And what is his response? Is his response to say, all right, here comes the meteorite, kaboom! Or we're going to drown them all out. Here comes the flood. Or here comes some hailstones. We'll just take them all out that way. What's his response? This is what he says. He says to Jonah, Jonah, I want you to go and I want you to preach against Nineveh. I want you to preach about, about their wickedness. And Jonah Jonah, you know my heart. Jonah, you know what kind of God I am, that I am the God of all gods, and that I am completely righteous. There's no sin in me, that I am light, and in, there, in me there's no darkness at all, and I cannot tolerate the sins that I see. I cannot tolerate it. And Jonah, I want you to go, and I want you to tell them about my heart. I want you to tell them about my holiness, and I want you to tell them that I'm a God that relents when someone turns from their sinfulness and they turn to me. I want you to tell them that there's grace and that there's compassion and there's forgiveness for them. You know my heart, Jonah. I want you to go and I want you to be my representative. Isn't it interesting that Jesus does the same thing with his disciples? He says, disciples, come here. Come here. You know my heart. I'm going to heaven now, and so I want you. I want you to go, and I want you to preach about the God that I am. I want you to go, and I want you to make disciples of others. I want you to baptize others. I want you to go, and I want you to teach them to obey everything I've commanded. 
He doesn't say to his disciples, hey, disciples, I want you to come over here and I want you to create your own community. I want you to create your own city and make big walls because we got to keep all the wicked people out. I want you to build big square footage buildings and so, so we'll keep the other people away from us. I want you to build a moat around who you are. No, he says, I want you to go and I want you to preach. When we see this word preach, it means to proclaim the whole truth of the gospel. To preach doesn't mean that you shout someone down or that you stand up on a box with a, with a bullhorn yelling at people in the streets. Even to preach doesn't even necessarily mean to stand here and speak to a whole group of people. To preach means to proclaim the whole truth of the gospel. And the gospel is that we're way worse off than we could ever think and way more loved than we can ever imagine. You see how it starts with bad news. It started with, hey, you are wicked people. That what you do actually matters. It, it matters what your actions are. And God is completely holy and, and you need to repent from your wickedness. The book of Romans tells us that everyone is, is, is sinful and everyone is, is, a, is wicked. And that the wages of that sin is death. But the other side of the gospel is, is that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, the gospel starts with the the negative but ends with the positive that when you repent from your sin, you can find forgiveness and hope. And God is saying, Jonah, Jonah, I want you to go and I want you to tell them about who I am. And we have the same commission. Matthew 5, Jesus says it this way. He says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So how do you interact with the Ninevites in this world? You go, and you shine. You go, and you preach. And we have that same commission. And yet, how does Jonah respond to that? What's his response? Well, verse 3. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Why did Jonah, the man of God, this great prophet, why did he flee Maybe, maybe he was afraid of the Ninevites. Well, no. It says here that he was fleeing from the Lord, not from the Ninevites. Well, maybe, I know, maybe he didn't know what to say. Well, he's a prophet. He's done this before, and God said, I'm going to give you the words. Or, or maybe Jonah was like, I don't understand the, the Ninevite culture and their doctrine. This is an issue of being equipped. I'm not equipped, right? But God didn't say go and argue with them. He just said go and proclaim this truth. I fear the real answer to this question is is very ugly. See, Jonah saw the wickedness of Nineveh. And Jonah wanted God to destroy them. He resented them. Some background on Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrians had made a peace treaty with Israel, but they kept breaking it. 
They would come into the land and they would raid their villages and they would pillage and they'd steal their grain and destroy and kill and they would set themselves up as government. They were so antagonistic and Jonah would have grown up with this. They'd have been surrounded by this. He resented them because they would come in and they would say, you know, the, 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 the gods of the community that they would invade would say things like, you're never to chew bubble gum. And so the Ninevites would come in, the Assyrians would come in and they would chew bubble gum. And they would make everyone else chew bubble gum too. And then the, the gods of the area would say, you're never allowed to wear skinny jeans. And so they'd come in and they'd only ever wear skinny jeans, which is maybe where they came from. I don't know. It's possible. <laughs> they, they would antagonize the people. And they would come in and they would take over the schooling system. And these Israelite kids who had their own culture, they would be robbed of their culture and they'd be taught Assyrian ways. And then they would start to intermarry. And boy, you don't want your son to marry an Assyrian girl. You know what they're like. And Jonah grew up around this. And he resented them. And he was secretly wishing that God would strike them down. Jonah was waiting for God to say, all right, get all the Israelites away. Give us a 10-mile blast radius because here it comes. God says to Jonah, Jonah, I want you to go and preach. And Jonah thinks, I don't want to do that. How do I know? Because he says it in chapter 4. So Jonah goes and he preaches. The Ninevites relent. Uh, the Ninevites repent and God relents. And then we have this exchange in, in Jonah chapter 4. It says, Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. And then he prayed to the Lord, O oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? This is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who resents, uh, relents from sending calamity. And the first time I read this, I'm like, Jonah, you don't say that out loud to God, at least. I mean, we think these things, but you don't say it out loud to him. Jonah was like, I knew it. I knew it, God. I knew it that if I went and preached to these people, there's a chance, there's a chance that they might repent and that they wouldn't get what's coming to them. And I want the hailstones to take them out. But God says, go and preach. Jonah watches the wickedness. He knows about all these things going on. He's experienced firsthand. Does that wickedness matter? Yes, absolutely. But what is the heart of God? God says, go and preach, not run and hide. Because the heart of God, the heart of God, is to extend grace and forgiveness. To extend grace and forgiveness. Second Peter 3, 8 through 9, says it this way. It says, Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness, but He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God is patient, and the story of Jonah is about his unrelenting passion to see the wicked come to him and find grace and mercy. He is patient, not wanting anyone to perish. You know, the patience of God is very hard 
to deal with as a Christ follower. The holiness of God is easy. The patience of God. I mean, there's so many struggles, so many things that we, we've, that we just struggle to put our minds around because of God's patience. I mean, why, does, why do good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to, to good people? If it wasn't for the patience of God, the moment a person or a people group did something bad, they'd just be struck down. But instead, God is patient. I mean, why does, why does ISIS get to get away with what they do? Meanwhile, my neighbor, this sweet, kind lady, ends up getting cancer and, and passes away for it. It's the patience of God that even sees the wicked and says, I don't want them to perish, but I want them to find forgiveness in me. You know, the holiness of God is easy. It's easy to get up and post on Facebook, here's why you're wrong, and here's the chapter and verse to prove it, probably taken out of context just to prove my point, right? Because the acts of the sinful nature are obvious, but the patience of God is so very difficult for us. I want the patience of God when it comes to my sin. When I've messed up, I'm so thankful for the patience of God. But what about the person that I don't like or my enemy or the nation's enemies or ISIS? Or, or do we want the patience of God for them as well? The patience of God is so hard to understand. God is unrelenting in his love for even the wicked and his heart is not to deep fry them. His heart is to extend mercy and grace to them. And the moral of the story is not how do we stay out of a fish, but the moral of the story is this, that when God looks down at humanity, when he scans the world, he is patient with us. He loves us even in the midst of our sin. And the moral of the story of Jonah is not that if I disobey God, I might end up in a fish, but that God is so compelled by his love for even the wicked, that if his servants don't carry out the message that he wants them to carry out, he's going to have a fish come intervene to help get the message across. The message will prevail through. God's love has compelled him to share this love with others. Are we going to resist it? And the question for the follower of Jesus is not, how do I stay out of the fish But what do I do with the Ninevites in my world? What do I do with those people that I, in my mind, they are the enemy? What do I do with the person at work? They might be a coworker or a boss that grates your nerves and they mock who you are and they are wicked people who don't act with integrity. What's your heart to them? What's your heart for your neighbor that has parties that stay up late all, all night and never mow their lawn and leave vehicles dilapidated out in their lawn. What's what's your heart for your enemies? Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 13. says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. 
For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is the Lord of all and richly bless all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And he says this, this is fascinating. He says, how then can they call on the one that they've not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? The heart of God is not to condemn and deep fry and nuke, but the heart of God is compassion and grace and mercy to those who turn to him. And the pattern of God is to use his people to be his his mouthpiece, to be his ambassadors, to go and preach, not run and hide, not run and hide, but go and preach. So I'm going to call up the band, and as they come up, I want to ask three questions. Three questions of us this morning. First is this, have you dealt with your own wickedness? Have you dealt with your own wickedness? Or are you just kind of playing games with this thing called church and religion? Are you just dancing around the outside, checking it out? God's word tells us that he is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. And that in our sin, the wage is death. But there is mercy and there is grace for those who repent. And repent is simply this. Repent is I'm heading in this direction and I'm turning and I'm going the other way. That's the catch. You have to repent from your sin. But when you do, you're given mercy and grace and forgiveness. And God's judgment relents. Have you dealt with your own wickedness? In ourselves, we cannot, we cannot deal or forgive our own sins. God is the only one that does it. Hebrews tells us that it's only with the shedding of blood that our sins are forgiven. And Jesus shed his blood for us so that we could have rightness with God. So that God's judgment would be poured out on Jesus and not on us. Have you dealt with your own wickedness? Second question is this. Do you love the people that God loves? How do you view your neighbor? How do you view your coworker? How do you view your brother-in-law that drives you nuts? How do you view countries on the other side of the world that, that are constantly threatening us with nuclear holocaust? How do you deal with terrorists? Do you say, God, take them down. Here come the hailstones. Or do you say, God, how can we bring about your kingdom here? How can, we, how can we preach to these people? How can we show the love of God to these individuals? Do you see them as the enemy? You know, for me, something I had to repent of, I used to listen to talk radio all the time. But I found that as I listened to it, they started, they started ingraining in me this idea that those other people who think differently than I do, the other people who may lean differently politically than I do, that they're the enemy. And so we use this war rhetoric. We've got to keep ourselves separated from the enemy. Look at all the bad things they're doing. We are in war, but in war you shoot the enemy. You don't shoot the hostage. And these people are hostages bound by the devil who is the enemy. We don't shoot the hostages. We shoot the enemy. And so I had to repent. I had to dial down my intake of talk radio. Do you love the people that God loves. The last question is this, is what do you do with the Ninevites in your world? Do you run and hide? Do we say as a church, you know what? 
we got to stay separate from them. So we're creating this, this bubble, and we want to keep people out. We're going to build up our walls. We're going to dig a moat. But we say, God, how can you leverage us as a church to go and to preach, to make disciples of Jesus, who make disciples of Jesus, who live and love like he did? That's got to be our posture, folks. That's got to be our posture. What do you do about the Ninevites in your life? We're going to sing a song in just a moment. Man, this is one of my favorite hymns of all time. The poetry in this is so rich. Love of God is greater far than tongue or pen could ever tell. It says, could we with ink the oceans fill and were the skies of parchment made were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God would, would drain the oceans dry and nor could the scroll contain the whole the stretch from sky to sky. O oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. They shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. We are privileged to carry the message of the love of God to those around us. What will you do about the Ninevites in your world? Let me pray, and we'll stand together, and we'll sing. God, thank you for your word. Thanks, God, for a mirror that it is, that it rebukes my heart, that it shows me where I need to be realigned with you. May we be compelled, Lord, as individuals, as mothers, as fathers, God, to go and to preach, not just serve in evangelism, not just be really nice, but God, to go and tell them about the relenting love of God. Oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. We love you, Jesus. Use us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.